at Genesis chapter 11. Skipping chapter 10, but we will refer back to it during our, our Bible study tonight. But tonight I want to talk about man versus God. Man versus God. But Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. Got a lot to cover, not as much as I normally do on a Wednesday night, but uh, but I want us to get into this and just look at these nine verses. Let's look beginning at verse number 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now, uh, another name for the land of Shinar is Babylon. We know that that has significance, especially in the end times. uh, The great whore Babylon is what it's referred to in the book of Revelation. It says, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. In our previous studies, we looked at the account of Noah. We focused on his faithfulness in building the ark, and we've seen the faith that enabled him to survive in God's waiting room. As a result of Noah's faith in God and his promises, Noah and his family were saved while the rest of the world was destroyed in God's judgment. When the flood was over, Noah presented an offering to the Lord and God was pleased and made a promise to Noah. You see this in Genesis 8.21. It says, The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then God gave Noah and us a rainbow which, to, which was to always serve as a reminder of God's promise. But did you notice something in the words I read? The flood is over, the ground has dried, but the problem still remains. And we've talked about all of this in previous weeks. God still says that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. There's still a problem of sin. But notice, He doesn't say that it's in the past tense. It's in the present tense. It's it's our nature. Someone once said this, we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. You see, the idea that mankind is basically good or born innocent is something that is never supported in Scripture. 
The Bible declares that we come into this world as enemies of God. Now think about that. We're born with a sinful nature. We come into this world with a hostility towards God. We come into this world with a sinful nature that is opposed towards God. Romans 5.10, Paul says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled. We as people are naturally rebellious and opposed to God. And many people don't like that. Many people want to kind of fight against that. But that is our nature. We are opposed to God that there's nothing righteous in us. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing in us that wants to seek after God. We are enemies. We're fighting against Him. We are at war against Him. And that's what Genesis chapter 11 is all about. That's what the Tower of Babel is all about. It's man's attempt to do their own thing and leave God out, but it ultimately fails. And here's why. When man leaves God out of the equation, eventually it always fails. Amen? That when you leave God out of your plans, when you leave God out of your life, eventually it's going to fail. Eventually it's not going to last. Listen to what Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Think about that. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And you can apply that to anything. Unless you build on the right foundation, you're going to fail. When it comes to trying to build the church, if you build on the wrong foundation, it's going to fail. You see, we can come in here on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights and we can have the smoke and the mirrors and all of these great things that attract the crowd, but that's the wrong foundation and sooner or later it's going to come crashing down. But if we build on the right foundation of Jesus Christ and we lift Him up and exalt Him and magnify Him, He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When you have the right foundation, it will endure. It will last, but if you have the wrong foundation, it all comes crashing down. We've got to make sure that we build on the right thing. Amen? You see, it's meaningless to do anything that God doesn't ordain or approve because it ultimately fails. That means we need to build our life for God. We need to live for His plan. We need to live for His purpose. We need to live for His dream and His goal for our life. We need to pray often, Father, not my will, but Thy will be done. Because what we do for Him is what's going to last. You see, what we do for ourselves, it's going to burn up one day. What we try to build for ourselves sooner or later, it's going to be destroyed. And yet we live in a world where so many people are trying to build big homes and trying to build names for themselves. All of a sudden, it's going to be destroyed one day. Only what we do for God is going to last. And, and, and everything else is going to be destroyed. Amen? And so tonight we're going to study the Tower of Babel. And I believe there's some important lessons for us to take away. But first I want to give you just a little bit of background information. So number one, I want to talk about the founder of Babel. I want us to look at who started this city. 
And I believe that it's clear from uh, the biblical record that the human founder of this city was Nimrod, the son of Cush, who was one of the sons of Ham. Now we talked about Ham last week and what happened with him and the curse on Canaan. Now, isn't it just like being the curse of Canaan to have a city of Babel? Isn't it just like that, to, something like that to happen? That Ham's son gets cursed, and all of a sudden now you've got a city that's rejecting God to come along. So let's look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 through 12. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtica. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kauna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city. Now, the scriptures don't tell us a lot about Nimrod and it's highly speculative to be too elaborate in our description based on tradition. But what the biblical record gives us is significant and informative. First of all, we have his name. Nimrod means the rebel. Now that by itself is kind of enlightening. His name means the rebel. And so whatever he did or whatever other characteristics he may have, may have had or exploits he may have performed, his name tells us a lot. He is one who had a problem with authority. Perhaps this first manifested itself in the home. We can imagine somebody who was characterized by rebellion would have had a problem with parents who told him what to do. Maybe he was named rebel because this was the type of son that Cush desired to raise. One that would rebel against social and religious conventions. One that would refuse to do the right thing. Perhaps Cush desired to raise a son who would oppose the way things were that who would oppose the way that things were by opposing the one who made them as they were. Perhaps he, referring to Cush, resented the curse placed upon his brother. So he planned to raise a son that would throw off this divine judgment. Think about this. Maybe Cush was thinking something along these these lines. My brother and his descendants to be slaves of slaves, that will never happen. And so perhaps Cush thought to raise a son that would change the family destiny and he raised a son to rebel against God's word. Think about that. He's thinking, hey, my brother, he'll never be a slave to anybody else. I'm going to raise somebody else who's going to rebel against this and stop what God wants. And so that's why he named him Nimrod. But secondly, we we see what the Bible says about the nature or characteristic of this rebel. No less than three times in two verses along with once in 1 Chronicles 1, verse 10, he is characterized as a mighty one, a mighty hunter, and the mighty hunter. In 1 Chronicles 1, verse 10, we read that Nimrod began to be mighty upon the earth. This phrase means that he was the first to be mighty upon the earth. So the question arises, what kind of mighty man? Was it a good might or a bad might? According to 
the Hebrew word, the word mani here refers to one who behaves proudly, arrogantly, or one who is a tyrant. So it's not referring to a good might. He, he's boastful, he's proud, he's arrogant. And we can summarize that Nimrod, the founder of Babel, he was a tyrant. He was boastful and he was somebody who liked to lord it over other people. He was rebellious, he was ruthless, and he was a tyrant. And so that's just a little bit of background about who founded the city of Babel. And so here's the thing. Rebellion only breeds more rebellion. If he's rebellious and he's founding a city, then guess what the city's going to be like? It's going to be rebellious itself. Again, if you build on the wrong foundation, you're only asking for trouble. And that's what takes place in in Bible. They were building a city, but they were building a city for themselves and not God. And that's why it led to their downfall. In fact, you don't find God mentioned until God shows up and says, I want to go down and see what's taking place in the city. It's let us build ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. And God's not mentioned until God says, hey, let's go down and look and see what's going on. It's all about them. And so that leads me to our first main point, which is point number two on our paper. We see man's rebellion. Man's rebellion. Look at verse 1 through 4 again. The whole earth had one language and one speech. Now think about that. Let me just kind of throw this in. There was a time that when everybody on the earth spoke one language and one speech. Now I don't know how many languages there are today, but there's hundreds of languages on this earth today. But there was a time when everybody spoke the same language. I don't know what the language was. But everybody spoke the same dialect. Everybody spoke the same thing. They could all communicate. There was unity. There was unison. And they could all get along and say the same thing. And everybody understood one another. Verse 2, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Their rebellion is direct disobedience to God. If you look at Genesis 9-1, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them what? Be fruitful. And what does it say? Multiply and what? Fill the earth. God gave the command for Noah and his sons to multiply Fill the earth. Everybody else had been destroyed. You've got Noah, his wife, their three sons, and the daughters-in-law. They've got to repopulate the earth. And so God says, hey, now you need to scatter out and go out and fill the earth again. And so Noah's sons, their wives, they go out, begin to have children, and they begin to disperse. But here's the thing. They migrate to Babel, to Shinar, and they found a place, so, hey, this looks good, and so they begin to settle down. They stop migrating. They stop dispersing. They stop being obedient. And they say, hey, we're going to settle down. We're going to stop doing what God wants us to do. Now, there was nothing wrong inherently with building a city. I don't believe that God necessarily wanted everybody to be nomadic people, that 
that God wanted people to establish, I believe, maybe colonies. But God wanted the earth to be populated. But the problem was that these people eventually decided that, hey, staying put was more important than staying obedient. A great civilization became more important than the great commission. And that's what we see in verse 4. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They didn't want to be dispersed. I've got my family here. These are my kinfolk here. I don't want to be separated. I don't want to be dispersed. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Let's just build ourselves a city and settle down. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. This verse tells us that they deliberately set out to disobey God's clear command to repopulate the earth for His name's sake. Rather than obeying the command to go, they chose rather to issue their command to come. And rather than building a kingdom for God's name, they chose to build an empire for their own name. And sadly, this behavior continues to be repeated today. I want you to notice several things about this. Look at letter A. First, they said come when God said go. They had their own agenda and it was opposed to God's agenda. They had a better idea. And I see a parallel here with the church today. You know, God tells us to go into all the world, but rather than do that, we build our own tower and we say to the world, come. Think about it. God tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and yet we build buildings, we build our own monuments, we build our own towers, and we tell the world, come and see. And God says, go. Listen, when we build our own towers and we tell the world to come hear us, that's not the Great Commission. Listen, I'm all about buildings and I'm all about the church gathering, but listen, the church can gather under a tent somewhere because the church is not a building, the church is the people. Amen? The church today is good at building towers and building monuments. But God has told us to go. Amen? We're to go. Whether it be in the school, in the workplace, in the community, we're to go reach people. But yet so many times we want people to come. But secondly, let her be. Notice that their idea of worship was misdirected. It would appear that these Babylonians had embraced idolatry. They believed that they could have a relationship with God through their own efforts. It seems that they were building a tower to get to God. They were attempting to build a structure whereby they could get to God their own way. They were attempting to build a structure. Their, their tower was man's attempt to domesticate God so as to control Him. And even though the tower was brought to nothing, man has sought ever since Babel to reach God their own way. Basically, the tower of Babel, it wasn't a tower like straight up. It was more like a, a pyramid, a stairway to heaven, so to speak. It was their own way of trying to reach God, a tower into the heavens. But here's the thing, the omnipresent God would not allow and will not allow ever for Himself to be domesticated by a man-made edifice. I know that later in history as you read the Bible, God gives instructions for the tabernacle and for the temple to be built. But listen, those things only symbolized His presence. Those things were only representative of Jesus Christ 
Those things were only pointing to the door who was Jesus. Those things were never meant to take His place. Those things were never meant to be edified and exalted above God. They were only meant to be tools to point to Him. I just want to say something. God can't be contained by a building. Amen? 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I built. Jeremiah 23.24 Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Says the Lord. God is everywhere and He can't be contained. But man has always tried to make God fit their imagination and thinking. Man has always tried to make God smaller than He is, but God is too big to be put in a box and shoved in a corner. Amen? God's bigger than us. God's bigger than our ways. God's bigger than our thoughts. Listen, His ways are incomprehensible. He can't be figured out. And yet so many times we try to shrink Him down to our size. Listen, God can't be figured out. He can't be shoved in the corner and He can't be regulated. God is God and He can do what He wants to do. But yet they build a tower thinking, hey, we can control God. We can domesticate God. We can please God with our own religion. But listen, any attempt we try to, uh, any attempt we make to try to approach God on our own is going to fail. And that's what they were doing. We're going to approach God on our own and it failed. Listen, we can't approach God but one way, and it's through Jesus. Amen? It's only through Jesus. Our good works, our effort, our religion will not work. You have to approach God the way He says approach Him, and it's through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it takes perfection to approach God. And guess what? None of us here tonight is perfect. Let her see. Third, they were more consumed with making a name for themselves than spreading the glory of God's name. They had no desire for the great commandment to love God supremely and little regard for the great commission. It became all about them rather than it being all about God. And eventually the nations became totally unconcerned about God. I believe that's been secular society's characteristic ever since. Self-importance, self-absorption, and self-focus. At the heart of man's rebellion is this desire to be known and recognized. Think about that. There, there is this desire within most all people, a desire to want to be known. A desire to want to be recognized. I would say that man's rebellion, man's disobedience is often motivated by pride and arrogance. And, and that's what was driving these people. It was pride. It was arrogance. We're going to build ourselves a city. We're going to make a name for our it was no longer about God. It was no longer about the honor of His name. It's about our name. We're going to become famous. People's going to see our tower. People's going to see what we've built. And we're going to become famous. Someone once said this, Pride is the only de- disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the person who has it. <laughs> In fact, pride is the, the one thing that we often recognize in others, but we don't recognize in ourselves. Isn't that so true? We'll recognize it in others, but we won't recognize it in ourselves. 
just want to ask you before I move on, are you concerned with making a name for yourself or are you concerned with lifting up the name of Jesus? I want us to be a church that is consumed with lifting up the name of Jesus. Listen, I, I, I'm not here to try to make the, the Jefferson Church of God name famous. I want to make Jesus famous. I want Him to be high and lifted up. I want Him to be exalted. I want His name to be known. I, I, I don't want my name to be known. I don't want your name to be known. I want the name of Jesus to be known. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. I want you to notice uh, letter D, one more thing. They were united in their rebellion. Look at verse 5 and 6. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And let me just pause right here. You would read this and it's almost like God didn't know what was going on if you read this. Lord, It's almost like God had to come down to find out what was going on. But listen, God, God, God's in control. God knew what was going on. He's omniscient. He knows all things. It's like... It's not like God was taking a break and God was sitting back asleep somewhere and He was caught off guard. He knew what was going on. And in fact, there's a little bit of satire and hilariousness taking place in this that, that, that God's not even concerned because He, he, he knows what's going on. He, he came down to see what the sons of men had built. And then the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. These two verses show us the power of unity, even when it's used for wrong. Think about that. In fact, according to what God says there in verse 6, they would have accomplished their task because of unity. Because they were on the same page, speaking the same language, and could communicate, God says, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Nothing will be impossible. That's the power of unity. They would have done it. And so God has to bring disunity. Now He does it here. Because it's eventually going to lead to evil. But let me just say this, there is coming a day when there's going to be a one world government and there will be unity and everybody will be united under the Antichrist. But he stopped it here so that eventually in the end there will be unity. Who's really in control? Had He let them stay united here, it would all end too soon. But the power of unity. And here's what amazes me. You can get the people of the world to rally together around things that totally contradict God's Word. And yet you'll get Christians who'll fuss and fight and argue and can't stand it. And that's why we don't have prayer in school. And that's why millions of babies get aborted. 
because the world can rally together and stand united while Christians fuss and fight and divide. It's been said like this that too often we're too known for what we're against and what we're for. We're too known for what we're against and what we're for. We let all the little things keep us apart. And we let skin color divide us. It's been said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. And I believe it. And it ought not to be. But yet we'll let people who practice homosexuality, they come together, wave the rainbow flag, which ought to stand for God giving us a promise that He'll never destroy this world again with a flood. But they'll rally around it and dishonor something that God gives us as a promise. There's power in unity. But yet we'll fuss and we'll fight about which denomination is right. We'll fuss and fight about whether or not we ought to speak in tongues or not with other denominations. Whether you speak in tongues or not is an issue as to whether or not you're going to heaven. Amen? We'll fuss and fight over whether or not you've been baptized in Father, Son, Holy Ghost, or in Jesus' name only. It, I could really care less. Have you believed in Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe this book is the Word of God? Do you believe in the virgin birth? Let's, let's believe and unite on the things that are essential to our faith. Amen? Instead of nitpicking and dividing on the non-essentials. But we'll fuss and fight over, oh, what Bible translation should we read from and preach out of? I believe the King James is the best. Oh, I believe the New American Standard or the NIV is the What difference does it? Listen, can I tell you which one's the best? The one you'll pick up and read every day. But we'll spend all of our time fussing, fighting, nitpicking, and dividing over these things while the world's going to hell. And we see what happens when people get together. Nothing they propose to do will be without. I don't have this scripture in there, but and I may preach on this Sunday morning I, about the power of unity. But Psalm 133, just, just jot it in your notes, and if you have your Bible, I'm going to turn there real quick. But Psalm 133, it's familiar. It says this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. 
It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God says it's, it's good, it's pleasant when brethren dwell together in unity. And can I tell you, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, the Bible says they were in one mind and one accord. If we want power and we want anointing and we want the blessing of God, it's going to take one mind and one accord. Why do you think Jesus says if two or three be in agreement? Because He knows how hard it is for people to agree. Why do you think the devil fights so hard to get people to disagree? Because he knows if we ever get together, it'll be hard to handle. That's why he wants us to fight so much. That's why he gets people nitpicking at things. That's why he'll get people upset with the pastor because pastor didn't shake my hand or the pastor didn't greet me or the pastor didn't, didn't do this or what. Because, he, because if he can get people a bit bitter he'll stop us but they could have built a tower into the heavens imagine what we could do if we were united if we were on the same page. Imagine how the Spirit could fall in this place if we came here Sunday morning united. If we got rid of all of our bickering, if we got rid of all of our bitterness. And I'm getting off my notes here for a moment, but I'm telling you, there's been times I've come out here on Saturday nights and prayed, and something inside of me stirs, and I don't know what it is, but I feel down in my soul and in my spirit that there's been things happening in this church that has not been dealt with properly, and it needs to be dealt with. I don't know what it is, and I could be wrong, but there's been things that I just feel stirred inside of me. There's been people hurt, offended, and it's not been dealt with. And it's blocking the flow of what God wants to do. I don't know if it's from previous pastors. I don't know if it's from congregation members. I, I, I don't know where it comes from. I've walked through this place and I, 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 I've tried to bind it. I've tried to rebuke it. I, 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 I've tried to send it on out of here. But I've walked through this place and I keep getting, coming back to it. The people's been hurt. And it has to be dealt with. Or we'll never go forward. Until we can come together. God will never do everything He wants to do. And I'll just say this. When it comes to releasing people and forgiveness, whether it feels right to do it, you do it because it is right. Amen. You may not jump up and down and shout when you do it, but you do it because it is right. Amen. 
Because God tells us to do it. Because we've been forgiven of so much. We've been forgiven of so much more than anybody's ever done to us. Amen. But man's been rebellious. And we see thirdly, got to move. About ten minutes, we see God's response. Look at verse 5 through 9. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Notice it's what they built. Not what God built, but what they built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. They all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us. Notice that, let us. I believe that's proof of the Trinity. He's talking to somebody. Let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel. Babel, it means confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. One commentator said, it must have been funny the next day they went out to work and the supervisor trying to tell the person what to do and he can't understand him. <laughs> he's trying to give him instructions. He's looking at him like, not knowing what he's saying. But God saw man's rebellion and he acted. God said that man was supposed to multiply and fill the earth. And here's the thing about God's will it's always going to be accomplished. God's will is going to be done. Uh, God's not going to sit back and just let man keep doing his own thing. God's not going to sit back and just let man keep going in his rebellion. God's going to deal with man's rebellion. God's going to deal with man's pride. And God's going to deal with it in his own way. And so God came down. He confused the people's language so that they couldn't understand one another. He scattered them abroad. In other words... They didn't do what God wanted them to do, so God said, okay, you're going to go now. You're not going to be able to understand your kinfolk. You're not going to be able to understand your brother and sister like you once did. You're not going to be able to keep the work going. And so you're going to scatter. And what we see is that God is in control. That God is in charge. Man may try to thwart God's plan, but God's purpose will always prevail. You see, we can try to fight against God if we want to, but God always wins. I think about Jonah. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm not going to go preach to those people. God, you're too merciful. God, you're too compassionate. If I go preach, they're going to repent. You're going to forgive them. Okay, Jonah. Go do what you want to do. But we know what happened. By chapter 4, Jonah's done went to Nineveh and he's done preached. And Nineveh's repented. He didn't want to go. But God told him he was going. And he ended up going. Right? Why? Because God's purpose, God's plan prevails. Man can fight it, but God's purpose prevails. God always wins. So God responded. And God wins. I want to close with three applications. Number one, if you're not growing in humility, you're not growing as a Christian. If you're not growing in humility, you're not growing as a Christian. Since pride is the root of all sins, humility is the chief virtue of the Christian life. I believe, in all honesty, pride is the root of all sins. 
Just look at the word sin, S-I-N. What's the middle letter? I. What about me? Have you ever thought about that? S-I-N. It's all about Pride. And we know what happens. Pride goes before fall. And so the main virtue of the Christian life, one of the chief virtues of the Christian life is all about being humble. All about being meek. And here's the thing about meekness. It doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you're a doormat and you allow people to walk over you. Jesus was, was meek, but He was also strong. doesn't mean that you think down of yourself. doesn't mean that you think less of yourself. You just think of yourself less. That's what it means. But if you go back to the original temptation in the garden, ever since then, Satan's been trying to actively get man to exalt himself against God. What got Satan kicked out of heaven? Heaven pride. And ever since then, he's been trying to get man to put ourselves above God. That was what he came to Eve with. You, you eat this fruit, you'll be like, you'll be like God. About pride. If you're here tonight, you're asking, how, how do I grow in humility? Here's the biblical answer. Get a clearer picture of the greatness of God in His holiness and get a more accurate view of the depth of your own sin. See God is holy and recognize how sinful you are. And that will humble you. Amen. When you recognize just how holy and perfect and righteous He is and just how messed up you are, you'll humble. And I'll just say this to you. If you won't humble yourself, God will humble you. Because right now we're living in a day where people don't want to bow down to Jesus, but there is coming a day that if they won't willingly bow down, every knee will bow down and confess Him as Lord. But here's secondly. Take care how you build because God will inspect it. Verse 5 said that the Lord came down, He saw the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. He inspected their work. And guess what? He's going to inspect our work. He's going to look at how we've lived our lives. He's going to look at how we've lived. He's going to look at what the foundation we've built on. And here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the motive behind our service to God. God looks at our hearts. He looks at our motives. And He's concerned about why we do what we do. Is it to gain the praise of men? Is it to meet our own needs? Or is it to honor and glorify Him? The question isn't what does your work look like from the outside? I'm sure the city and tower were the most impressive thing on the face of the earth in that day. And as you look around today, there's a lot of works for God in our day that seem quite impressive. So the question is, what does God say? What does God say? Number three, make sure that your hope for heaven is based only on God's grace through the cross of Christ, not on anything in yourself. Man's religions always seek to reach God through human effort. So man can boast in his standing before God because he had a part in it. 
But biblical Christianity says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What Paul said in Galatians 6, 14. The cross strips us of our pride and puts all our hope in the merits of the Savior. Amen.